Welcome to No More Desire. My name's Jake Castleman. I've had personal experience with what it takes to get clean and stay clean of porn. And now I'm helping others just like you break free and step into their new life. Through one-on-one coaching, daily check-ins, and life-changing material, I help others break free of porn and never look back. To discover how you can overcome porn addiction, go to nomoredesire.com. Hey, this is Jake with No More Desire. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Today, I'm going to talk about a lot about my story, my conversion story, my recovery story. I'm going to talk about very crucial turning points in my life that led to both my recovery from porn addiction and from other addictions like addictions to food, addictions to drugs, alcoholism, um, addiction to things that you might not really think are addictions like codependency or addiction to shame or um, even an addiction to nutrition or exercise. I'm going to talk about that, uh, a bit about my story and how I got caught up in those things and how I eventually came out to go from 10 years addicted to eight and a half years sober now. I'm coming up on nine years next February. And I want to share some things about my story that hopefully you'll be able to relate to and understand that will help you not feel so alone and to share some things that are going to empower you to be able to quit porn or to quit any addiction that you deal with. And the things I share today can really be pertained to any addiction that you are going through, I believe. So at 13 years old, I was in a Christian family I began looking at porn, right, which didn't match up with that Christian upbringing. I had traditional Christian values, parents dedicated to their faith, very conservative upbringing. And looking at porn was, I mean, obviously to say say the least, that was uh, certainly not encouraged. I mean, my father, Mark Castleman, was one of the pioneers in the field of the brain science of porn addiction. You can check out his book, The, the Drug of the New Millennium. Uh, very insightful, very groundbreaking book. It came out back in 2001. So when I was 13, you know, he'd been doing that for several years, and I, I understood that porn was addictive. At such a young age, I really didn't know what addiction meant. Um, I didn't get that. I didn't know that addiction, you know, also came with things like anxiety, depression, motivation issues. I didn't know that being addicted to porn or watching porn could influence the mind in the way that it would really mess up the relationships I would have in the future with women or really my idea of and views of sex uh, for many, many years, things that uh, baggage that I still carry to an extent, even after eight and a half years of sobriety. But I did at least know that porn wasn't a good idea. And I want to make it clear that, you know, my addiction didn't, my issues didn't start at 13, right? These issues of anxiety and depression and all these things that came from porn, it certainly wasn't porn that was the, the isolated issue. Porn was most, more so a symptom of all the other things that I was going through. You know, my my life really as a as a kid 
I was highly perfectionistic. I was very, very insecure. I felt lonely and isolated. And when I was around seven years old, you know, if you go back five years before I even started to have issues with porn, when I was seven years old, I, being such an anxious child who was so worried, I really wanted a way to escape. You know, I had some, some troubles at home. Um, I had some troubles as far as, uh, you know, and, and I want, in saying that, I want it to be known that, you know, my parents were very good people, um, trying hard to handle some difficult situations with siblings and things and stuff that we were going through as, as a, as a family and, you know, every family's got their stuff and, but I, you know, I was going through some of that and I, and, uh, dealing with a very, again, a very serious, very anxious mind. And I wanted a place to escape, right? I had a lot of perfectionism, shyness. Um, and because of these feelings, I sought out a place that was certain, that was secure, that was highly stimulating and where there were no risks, at least not any real ones. And that was video games. And video games showed me that I could, I could isolate myself, right, and do something where no one could judge me, right? I was already judging myself so harshly. I could make mistakes. There were no real consequences. You know, if I died in a game, I simply came back to life. And if I messed up, I could just do it over again. And I was, you know, at that time, I was filled with so much social anxiety. Video games made it so I could avoid people and still get a dopamine rush, which being with people, you know, gives you oxytocin, it gives you dopamine, these neurotransmitters, it fills you with serotonin, right? At least in certain interactions, not always, but when you're with people who are, you're having a positive interaction with, it's very good for the mind. Um, it's very positive for the soul. But I could avoid all that and I could be by myself, play my games that were risk-free, uh, get that dopamine hit. Video games are highly rewarding and they require very little effort. And so my video game addiction became pretty extreme, I would say, by age 12. Certainly not as extreme as some, but I was playing about two to three hours a day on average. Um, and... That affected my mind far more than I knew. I mean, I, that's just the way that I thought. I had no idea that video games were impacting me so poorly. And I would say that we're coming to understand some of these things over the last 20 years. You know, when I was a kid, that was just the, the starting of people beginning to understand that things like video games and porn um, could actually harm the mind. I was just at the, at the very beginning of all of that. Is when I started to become addicted to these things. And now we're, we're seeing the impacts on the brain um, for many children and teenagers and young adults especially uh, that they're unmotivated. They don't want to go out into the world and accomplish and do and be and um, build relationships that are meaningful. And for you, um, if you're a recovering addict or you're trying to overcome addiction, kind of, you know, me explaining that I don't mean to say that in any kind of a way to demean anyone. I, ex I explain that as a way to help you uh, see maybe some of the things that you might be going through and to know that those, that things like porn or video games or other addictions, it could be 
pretty much any addiction, it, it does um, damage the mind. And that's hard. That's a, that's a hard truth to accept. But the mind can heal, which is beautiful. The mind can heal. You can get better. And really, in a ma- I mean, once you quit, in a, matter, in a matter of even a few months, you can make some pretty significant changes in the way your mental health works and the way your mind works. It takes years to really establish some, some real habits um, that are more concrete. And even after all that time, you still have to take it one day at a time. You know, I'm, I'm eight and a half years sober, and I still need to take my recovery one day at a time and just be sober for today. But the instant gratification of video games and their highly rewarding nature set me up for a porn addiction. Video games, they re- again, they required very little effort in comparison to how much effort is needed to get an equivalent dopamine hit or re- a mental reward in real life. My focus and my motivation were damaged. My ability to socialize was damaged. My maturity levels and ability to cope with hard situations without desiring to escape was damaged. Video games were all a big part of that, you know? And so this started a domino effect in my life throughout my teenage years. First, after six years of playing video games from about age seven, I I played some before that, but age seven was when it started to really become a, a central part of my life. After that, after six years, it was then porn at 13 years old. Then it was drugs, alcohol, and sex at 16 years old. Then it was more intense and more explicit porn at 18 and taking more risks, more risky behaviors, even getting into some illegal behaviors, right? All these things, you know, by age 18, I was so in the thick of all of this. It was, it was hard to see how much all of this had trapped me, put me in chains. And... I testify right now, if it wasn't for God, I would have been doomed to the destruction of my own hand. Fortunately, that wasn't my path. And I believe that is because God changed my heart and made me a new creature. And I want to talk about how that happened. So before I get into that, I just want to say, if you haven't downloaded my ebook, my completely free ebook, with the seven causes and seven solutions to addiction. Go to nomoredesire.com. You'll find it there on the, on the homepage if you scroll down a bit, or I have a link in the description below. It's a very, very helpful resource if you're looking to recover and overcome addiction. It really combines a summary of all the concepts that I've learned over the last 10 years of my life, um, both during the time when I was a couple of years when I was really working out of my addiction and then the past eight and a half years as I've been clean. So that resource is there for you. It's totally free. Again, go to the link in the description or go to nomoredesire.com. So when I was 17 years old, I had a spiritual experience. And this was amidst all my crap. You know, I'm, I'm thick in the darkness. I was so lost and dark at this point with all, all of these things that, again, were, were chaining me down, were filling my mind with chaos. 
the violent and sexual television, the dark and angry music, right? I was, I was listening to heavy metal and screamo music every day. And, and some people may not think that's a big deal. I'm here to tell you it does influence your ability to recover and overcome your addiction. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is in my view. I was playing hours of video games each day. I was swearing, I was gossiping, I was backbiting, I was doing drugs, I was consuming alcohol. And I was not doing any of these to like a moderate extent. This was, for me, it was extreme. For someone with perfectionism and someone who values being, values self-control, it was very extreme for me. And in truth, that value of self-control, the perfectionism uh, in many ways was what underlied the reason I went to any of those things in the first place. But behind all of this, you know, secretly in the background, I have my daily porn addiction that I'm struggling with, which pretty much nobody knew about at that point. I even went to drug counseling when I was 17 and lied to my drug counselor when he asked me if I had a porn addiction because I had been clean for two weeks and I thought that I had it under control as so many of us addicts, because of our addict brain, right? Not because we're bad or we're trying to lie or be deceitful, which, you know, sometimes we are, but I wasn't trying to be deceitful. It was that it was something I was so ashamed of and I was really convinced. I, I, I listened to that justification, that rationalization my mind made of, oh, well, you haven't watched porn in two weeks. You're good. You got it this time. And that was, you know, that was the pride, right? It was the pride and it was deceitful, but, you know, it's the pride, it's the fear, it's the shame. What will people think, you know, or I've got this under control when really we don't. Again, underneath all that, you know, I'm feeling a lot of fear. I'm feeling a lot of insecurity. Um, I'm running away from life's challenges. I'm running away in many ways, I came to understand later, from the knowledge that I could do some pretty good things with my life, even great things. And those expectations terrified me. And I felt ashamed that I wasn't doing more with my life. And the more shame that I felt about that, the more it just really entrenched me in my addictions. Because you'd think it'd be the opposite, right? You'd think if I felt bad about the fact that I was caught up in so many addictions, then I'd like stop, right? That's not the case. We don't overcome addiction, something that's caused by, it's, it's we become susceptible to addiction by fear, shame, pride, right? It's the insecurities, the perfectionism, the unreasonable expectations we place on ourselves, that pressure that causes us to go toward addiction. We don't overcome addiction using the same methods that got us there. So anytime, like when we try to shame addicts out of their addiction, we try to scare them out of it. That can lead to something short-term never anything long-term. If we want to overcome addiction long-term, we have to have acceptance. We have to have surrender to the hard, challenging things that we face, to the difficult feelings and the insecurities, and to the help of others and the help of God. 
And we've got to feel faith. We have to feel worth. We have to feel love. These are the things that are the antithesis of addiction. So what happened when I was 17 years old? where my life started to change. You know, what, what got me out of this? I'm caught up in the thick of this darkness. I really don't know that my life is that bad. Like I, at the time, I don't think too much of it. You know, it's all very subconscious. It's all out of my awareness as far as how bad my life is at this point and how bad it could truly get. You know, my parents are doing their utmost to, they see what's going on, you know, and they're, they, they suspect um, other things they they've seen enough throughout their lives to know I'm I'm deep I'm deep in the in the garbage and the muck and the crap they see the friends I'm hanging out with and they're just terrified and they try to help me but they can't even reach me I don't I can't even hear them I can't even hear them I'm so in my selfishness and in my addictions their words meant nothing to me I just wanted pleasure and I just wanted to not get in trouble. And of course I was a teenager and that comes with the, the trade in some ways, right? But that's where I was at. And so at 17, my dad comes to me. And again, I'm in a Christian home, conservative values. Um, you know, I'm LDS uh, or Mormons, right? As, as some call us, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm, and I'm and I'm not living it. Like I'm going to church, right? But I am not living any of the teachings whatsoever. I am literally smoking weed and drinking with people who are in my church, other young men that are in my quorum. And so my dad, who's so concerned about me, one week says, "Hey." I would like to sit down once a week with you and we're going to talk about gospel topics. We're going to uh, discuss gospel topics in depth. And as you can imagine at this time, I'm like, what? My attitude about it is just so bad. It was never in my nature really to be um, explicitly and overtly rebellious I more so did it subtly and hid it and did it behind the scenes. So I didn't tell him no. I just said fine. I was probably, I mean, I didn't even say anything rude to him about it, but inside I was fuming, right? Angry, complaining to my friends, talking smack behind my dad's back, which he didn't deserve in any kind of way. It's part of the addict, uh, part of the addict mindset. And so, you know, when, when we started doing this, um, I think we did it two separate weeks. It was fine to me, you know. I didn't get much out of it as much as my dad tried. But then I testified that this was an answer to my dad's prayers because on week three, he sat down, to me, down with me to talk to me about the plan of salvation or the plan of happiness as well as what we refer to it sometimes in our, in our faith. And he talked about Christ, and he talked about the atonement, and he talked about um, life before this, physical earth life, life after this, and all these, these truths as we know them, right, as we believe them. 
as best we know at this point. And, and I felt something. Man, I, I felt something. I felt something good that I hadn't felt maybe since I was a little kid. And it's like I had sat in these church meetings every single week for my whole life. And I was so closed off and so prideful and so filled with, with darkness, so far from God. It's like I didn't know it was the spirit, right? I didn't know it was truth that I was feeling. I was feeling the love of God in my heart for the first time in years. And I wanted more of that. And for me at that point, it was just selfish. That was, there's nothing really deep or sophisticated or complex about it or, or even dedicated in any kind of way to God. It was just, man, you know, I want to feel, at that time, I want to be cool. That, that's literally what motivated me. I want to be cool. And I knew that if I felt more of that good feeling, maybe I could be cooler for my buddies. And that's stupid, right? But that's where my testimony, that's where my relationship with God started. A lowly, selfish, prideful place, but nonetheless where it started. And so, due to the grace of God and his inspiration, without almost even knowing what I was doing, I started reading my scriptures and praying most days. You know, probably on average four or five days a week. Less sometimes. And I started feeling good. I started feeling more confident. I started feeling cooler, quote unquote, which is a ridiculous and ambiguous word that means something different to everyone. I felt better. I felt more clear-minded. I felt more motivated. I felt more connected to other people. I felt funnier. I felt more capable. And I didn't experience a 180 at this point. You know, I, I was starting to gain a belief in God over as the weeks and the months went by. And it was very immature at this point and, and again, very, very selfish. But I still had all the same crappy habits. Even though God was coming into my life, I was still cheating lying, abusing my body and mind, treating other people poorly. You know, I was selfish and self-centered. My motivation to accomplish and make a difference in the world was really shot by so many of the things I was, I was doing. Um, the drugs, the alcohol, the porn, the video games, the junk food, all these highly pleasurable, low effort things. And you know, all those dreams I'd had as a kid of being a great man, you know, a loving husband and father, successful businessman even, a dedicated member of the community, they'd all been destroyed by my choices. I was, I was on a fast track to being a total loser. And God snatched me out of that. He began leading me out one small step at a time. And over the next five years, from the time I had this initial spiritual awakening, this experience at 17, 
Over the next five years until I was about 22, I would continue to come in and out of addiction as well as faith. I would um, second guess and convince myself as to the psychological reasons why I had felt what I thought was the spirit, quote unquote. And I would do that probably five times, five significant times over the next five years. And it may have been four. I'm not sure if I'm recalling that incorrectly. There's my perfectionism coming out. Got to get that number right, right? You know, I would, I would also quit drugs so, more times than I can count and quit alcohol and quit porn. Porn was probably the thing I quit the most and went back to again and again and again. You know, I'd quit uh, for two weeks and then I'd s- slip back in. I'd quit for a month and then I'd come back. I'd quit for three months and I'd come back. Eventually, I got to the point with, with porn where I quit for a year and I thought I was out. You know, I was like, man, I'm free. I got this. You know, I've got this under control. I haven't been, I haven't been using porn for a whole year. Look at me go. Look at me go. And that's pride coming through and, and exactly what happened. I think you can imagine what happened at that point when I started thinking that way. I relapsed. You're never done. You know, I relapsed. I started using again, went through months of that, until then I quit again. What a full year. A full year. There were, and, and then I relapsed again. You know, there were a lot of times that I gave up and committed myself to being a slave to these vices forever. I remember when I was 21, um, during this five-year path of this slow progression, these, you know, two steps forward, one step back, which is just often how it goes. I remember when I was 21 and I was drinking, I was drinking before I went to work some days. And fortunately, I was one that, you know, because of my upbringing, because of my mind, because of God in my life at the time, I think that's the biggest thing is God was in my life. I I knew I was in trouble. And when I started seeing I was doing that, I that didn't last for very long, but I was like, man, I am, this is starting to get out of control. Like this could really get to a point where this will take over my life. And I saw that I started to feel like I needed alcohol in order to feel the confidence that I needed to have, the motivation I needed to have to live daily life. And I was right on the cusp I was just starting to live my life that way. And fortunately, because of God's grace, I, di- I didn't go too far down that road. You know, I was praying, I was reading of scripture, I was trying to change. At the end of the day, you know, to an extent, I just hadn't committed to God yet. I wasn't ready for that. I still had to go through more pain before I'd finally commit. Before I'd finally commit to sobriety, before I'd finally commit to God that I was going to live life his way, and I'm still learning that. 
but I hadn't yet completely committed, you know, that I was going to stay sober, that I was going to do what it took. I hadn't surrendered all my pain and my weaknesses to him and decided that I was going to put down the ways of the world and choose his way instead. And so I want to tell you a, I want to tell you a story because I think this really drives this home hard. And it's a vulnerable story for me, but I'm going to tell it. New Year's, when I was 21 years old, I'd been sober from porn for almost a year. And I get together with one of my buddies. You know, New Year's was hard for me. It was extremely triggering for me because I always, in a really bizarre way, I always felt this expectation that I was supposed to have a bunch of fun on New Year's, that it should be a party, that it should be epic, that I should hang out with tons of people and have a rager. And if I wasn't doing that, then I was a loser. And that's, it's, it's, it's completely not true, right? But that's what society had taught me in a lot of ways. And the crowds I had run with for years, the TV shows I had watched, the movies I had watched, taught me that. And so my, I get together with my buddy, and he and I, this is the day before New Year's, so it's the eve of New Year's Eve, if you will. We get together and we play video games. Uh, Final Fantasy VII is what it was. We just like took turns playing it. Weird, I know, I, I don't know. Just me and him, just, just being dudes in our cave, played Final Fantasy VII for like eight hours through the whole night. And I was not playing video games at that time. I mean, on occasion, maybe, but I, I knew that they were, I knew they made my mind vulnerable. I knew that they would, could be a serious issue for me by that point. But my buddy really wanted to play and I succumbed to peer pressure. I didn't hold to my boundaries and values, which I've learned to do that since then through a number of experiences that have been extremely, extremely sad. I, I, I'll say, you know, the outcome in the long run was good and that I, gain more of a commitment to the way I needed to live, no matter what anybody said. I just had to live that way for recovery. Um, but I didn't say no to him that at that time. And so I, so instead we, we played for eight full hours and I was convinced in my mind, you know, I was, had this justification, this rationalization of like, oh, it's all been in my head that video games, you know, make my mind more vulnerable to porn addiction. That's, that's just all in my head. I'm just being a, a wuss, right? I'm just being paranoid. And there was a little truth to that, maybe like 5% in that, yes, I was very paranoid that if I even sat down and played video games for a half hour or an hour, it would make me, I would instantly go back to porn, which for years, I feel like I really needed to fast from video games in order to get my mind straight so that I could even approach them. You know, now I probably play them maybe once a month, maybe, maybe less, maybe once a month, once every couple months, I sit down with family or friends and we'll play a game together for a half hour, maybe an hour at the most. And then I'm done. I'm good. Uh, cause I know my limits. 
Um, yeah, so we played for eight hours. I felt completely unhinged. I felt like I was a sponge that just needed to be filled with pleasure. And no matter how much pleasure I was given, it wasn't going to be enough. And I called up this girl that was really bad for me, who I hadn't spoken to in months. And I was, I was bad for her as well. Uh, very bad for her. And, uh, you know, we got together, we committed sexual sin together, um, on new years. And, uh, I, again, that was 10 years ago now, uh, almost, I think I'll be coming up on 11 years soon here, but that's, that's what I, uh, you know, that's what I did at that point because I just felt like I had no choice. I felt like I was a victim to this desire for pleasure. And I was, I even talked, I even talked to someone about it before I went and did it, you know, and I just said, I feel like I'm just too far gone. This is what I'm going to do. And they said, don't do it, man. Don't do it. And I did it anyway. I knew exactly what I was getting into and I watched myself do it. And from then on, you know, I, I started, and again, I know for some people, they're going to see that differently, right? Some people don't feel that way about sex. But for me, according to my beliefs, that was a really, really big deal. Um, we, within the church of Jesus Christ, we don't do that, right? As, as far as that's um, against our beliefs to have sex outside of marriage. So it was a big deal for me, right? So after this happened, you know, I felt far more susceptible to porn, um, to watching porn. And I, and I craved it for a month and a half until I finally gave in. And that was after I watched a movie that had some sexual scenes and just a lot of worldly and crass things in it. And that kind of pushed me over the edge. And then I went and uh, went back to porn. And, I, and again, I had been sober over a year from porn at this point. And I learned some really, really hard lessons from this. And whatever it is that you're addicted to, whatever it is that um, is your vice, it could be food, it could be porn, it could be drugs, alcohol, it could be gambling, it could be codependency, it could be internet addiction, social media, whatever it is. I found out that the movies that I watched, the people that I spent my time with, the video games, all of these things made me more susceptible to my addiction, right? If I wanted to stay sober, I had to cut some things out of my life. That was the last time I ever played video games for more than, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Ever. And, I, and again, I do not play video games even on a weekly basis. I, I stay away from them because I just know that... They are a low effort, highly rewarding activity that stimulates the brain in such a way that it, it makes us crave pleasure. And you can fight that, you can deny that, you can say it isn't true, right? If I sit down and I eat, I eat four cookies in one sitting and I flood my entire body with sugar, I'm probably going to be more susceptible to desiring more low effort, highly stimulating activities like porn. Again, you can fight it. You can deny it. I've watched the same thing in other people I've worked with. I've watched the same thing in myself for many years. 
It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a treat on occasion. It doesn't mean you can't sit down and play video games for a half hour here or there. Doesn't mean that I can't watch some fun movies. But it does mean that I'm not going to cross certain boundaries. I'm not going to watch certain movies. I'm not going to play certain video games, right? If I'm sitting down to play video games, it's something that's fairly innocent. It's just simple fun. It's not anything violent. It's not anything sexual. Because God kept telling me for years, Jake, you got to give this stuff up. If you want to be sober from addiction, which is, in my opinion, the most difficult thing to get sober from, in my experience and from talking to other people, you've got to give this stuff up because porn is instantly accessible. It's like sticking a heroin needle next to a heroin addict at all times. We have our phones. We have our computers. Our drug of choice is right next to us. So how is it without making a supreme life change, a massive life shift in lifestyle and choices, thoughts, actions, words, the things you choose to spend your time doing? How are you going to overcome something like that without a massive lifestyle change? And so because of this experience and how discouraging it was to mess up after over a year sober, I was so devastated. I said, you know, God, I'm done doing it my way. I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to surrender. I'm done making these choices that make me susceptible to porn addiction. I thought I was good. I'd been sober over a year and I wasn't good. And because the truth is you're never good. You're never, in other words, you're never to the point where you're, you're free, right? You're, you're no longer susceptible, I should say. Because it's lived on a daily basis, right? I have a lot of peace with that now. Yeah, after eight and a half years, oh my gosh, is my life better? It's so much better. My emotions better? They're so much better. But that doesn't change without me making some big shifts in my life. Again, shifts in my thoughts, shifts in my choices, shifts in my relationships. From then on, I started praying and reading of holy words every single morning. No matter what, it didn't matter if I was on vacation, I'd get up early before everyone else and I'd get my spiritual time in. That's still what I do to this day. It didn't matter if there were plans to leave somewhere at six in the morning with family or friends to go on a hike, whatever it is. I would get up before that and spend time with God. I still do that to this day. No matter what, I said I would dedicate my day to God as best I could, and I'm not perfect at that. I am very flawed at that. But at least I get that daily spiritual time in, at least, every single day. And I pray to God throughout the day about all sorts of things, in gratitude, and, I've, and I try to focus my prayers on doing good for other people, that God will bless me with characteristics and gifts to bless those around me so I can... So I can, I'm so prone to selfishness 
I'm so naturally self-centered. And so I, I need to constantly focus my mind on God and on doing and on helping other people around me, such as if I'm at work, I say a prayer before I go to work. I say, Lord, help me today to show up with humility, to show up with vulnerability and openness that I may hear the words of my team around me, value their opinions, help them feel accepted, help them feel loved and understood, that I may spend my time doing those things will best serve my team. Fill me with focus and motivation and determination so that I may finish projects that need to be finished for the good of my team so that their families can be benefited by the work I do today so they can provide for their families so we can maintain our jobs and our work. And I'm praying for that. I'm doing that consciously so that I can keep my mind focused on other people. And then God is helping me develop and develop that viewpoint and that motivation more every day. Again, because I really suck at it. I, I really have a lot of selfishness inside. And so I, I got to constantly be aware of where I'm at and, and getting that focus on other people and on God. So again, it, it requires surrender, it requires acceptance. You know, I embrace the fact that I could no longer make excuses for not reading of scripture and praying each day. That is something I had to stick to. And so for me at this point, that looks like 20 minutes in scripture study and 20 minutes in prayer in the morning. That's what gets me centered, right? And then I go exercise for about a half hour. And that is, that's my, that, that right there, that time in the morning is what all of my recovery hinges upon. It hinges upon God and my relationship with God, right? But without that time, I would not be sober. I've still made all sorts of mistakes since then, right? Had really, really hard days or weeks or months that I've faced with addiction cravings and dark times. But I have always come out sober because of my relationship with God and my Savior Jesus Christ and because I take that time every day, no matter what. So I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to start to make that a habit and commit. And the more that you do that, the more motivated you will be to do it. It started out as a fear thing for me, you know, doing the scripture study and prayer every day. I felt like if I don't do this, I'll, I'll relapse. And now for me at this point, it's more, it's just a thing I do, but it's also, I enjoy this time. You know, it's, it's probably the best part of my day and I'm not going to go without it because I love it. It fills me with light, you know, so that fear turns to love in a lot of ways. It doesn't mean I'm not, never motivated by fear in life. I'm motivated by fear every day, and I'm working on that. But it can change, right? Sometimes you got to start from a place of fear, and then eventually it will, it will evolve, and God will help you do that. God fills you with that love as you turn to him. You surrender. You open yourself. So I've made a lot of changes over those years, you know, over the last eight and a half years that have improved my sobriety. They've made it easier, and I want to share some of those with you. First off, as I've mentioned earlier, I got rid of angry and dark music that I listened to. I used to listen to rock. I used to listen to rap. I don't do that anymore. 
It's my personal choice. What do I listen to? Now, as far as this phase in my life, something I've really enjoyed a lot, I listen to a lot of lo-fi. Lo-fi is really calming. It helps me focus. It helps get me kind of in Zen mode, if you will. I love Japanese lo-fi. I love some lo-fi hip-hop. I love just, you know, that peaceful, chill music. It doesn't get me all amped up or stimulated or it doesn't have these lyrics that are talking about all this worldly stuff about money and guns and fame and women and all this absolute bull that the world touts and talks about all the time. If you listen to music, music like that, it's what you're, you're going to value. And if you value stuff like that, you have to ask, how does that affect your recovery? Not to be harsh, it's just the way it is. And so I got away from that. And other than that, I listened to classical music. And you know, some people might think that's funny, but honestly, classical music is, it's great for focus. It's great for helping you feel happy and motivated. You know, I'll listen to Bach and Beethoven and Vivaldi and other composers while I work out. It, and it takes a while to get used to that right? At first it wasn't fun. It was like, it's not like I listened to classical music and I'm just pumped. I used to listen to heavy metal and screamo and, you know, all that remains and trivium and uh, all sorts of other bands, Metallica and all these things that were intense and extreme. Metallica was the lightest of stuff that I listened to at that time. And so it took a while to transition, right? I, but I, I just knew I needed to kick those things out. And once I did, man, I had this lightness. I remember the day at the gym when I got rid of all my pirated music and all this crap that I had I'd stolen. And people don't consider that. A lot of people don't consider that stealing. But that, in, in, I'm going to tell you right now that that's not true. Look, you have to be real about what, about what your choices are and stop justifying. Because pirating music is stealing. Pirating movies is stealing. And if you want to feel the spirit of God and you want to feel peace, you got to stop doing that. I got rid of all that stuff. I got rid of my hard rock music. I got rid of all the rap. And man, when I was at the gym that day, I ran further than I, I had and with more peace than I had in, in years, ever. I was light. I was light on my feet. I felt the spirit of God. It's peace. That's what we want in this life. We don't want pleasure and happiness, quote unquote. Happiness can mean anything. We want peace. If you want peace, you got to change the things that you're listening to. So I used to also watch worldly TV shows and movies, you know, and on occasion that doesn't mean I won't make a bad call about a movie or a TV show that I'll watch. Hopefully I learned from that, right? I look at that and I say, you know what? Maybe this isn't the best call. Maybe this isn't the best call for my recovery and my closeness to God. I used to play a lot of video games. I don't do that anymore. Other than maybe, again, once a month, once every couple months, I'll sit down for a half hour, maybe an hour at the most with friends and family, chill and play some Smash Bros or something, right? Just, again, a video game that's not... It's none of this violent stuff and these first-person shooters and things people are playing these days. A lot of people are going to hate what I say right now, but that's leading straight to porn addiction. It deadens your sensitivity as a person. It deadens your sensitivity towards other people's feelings and, and 
to the more subtle things in life that require a lot of patience. You will not have patience for nor a love for things that are subtle if you spend so much time in things that are extreme, like virtually murdering people on a screen. Again, some people are going to think that's an exaggeration, but that's justifying playing games like that. you got to be real about what you're doing and look at it because the world has changed a lot over the last several decades. We put up with a lot of things these days that we never would have put up with 60 years ago. It's become very extreme, and a lot of these extreme things have become normal. If we want to overcome something like porn addiction, again, something that is always readily available, we've got to make drastic life changes. Something else that's changed in my life is my diet. I eat a lot of veggies, a lot of whole foods. I stay away from junk food and processed sugar pretty much exclusively because I know that those things bring my energy down. They don't make me feel mentally or physically well. And if I don't feel mentally and physically well, if I feel like crap physically or my mind is lacking the umph that it needs to live life well because of what I'm eating or not eating, that's going to make me susceptible to addiction. And also as a personal note, I stay away from grains at this point. I've been doing that for, I don't know, maybe a couple of years almost, something like that. I found for me personally, my body just doesn't digest grains very well. Maybe that'll change one day. I don't know. Maybe it's all in my head. I don't know. I just know when I eat them, my body doesn't do very well with them. They give me low energy. And so I found going off of grains, obviously getting out the processed sugar as well, has helped me a lot with my recovery and made recovery easier. It's made it easier to stay sober. Another thing I've done is I've practiced focusing less on my feelings and my needs and more on serving God and others. Still pretty bad at that, but I'm learning. I used to obsess about the way my body looked. That's another thing. You know, I used to obsess over the way my body looked. Did I have enough muscle? Did I have the six pack that I should have based on all these bodybuilder magazines? You know, that did I look fit enough? Was I buff enough? Now I hardly ever look at my body in the mirror. That might sound hilarious, but I literally don't. I'm not saying that to toot my own horn. I'm just saying that was, lit that was seriously something that was necessary for me. I dealt with so much body image shame and so much obsession with my body. I had to, for the most part, just stop looking. Because it gets you focused on you. And again, for me, I got to think about things like this. What is empowering my recovery? What is empowering my closeness to God? What is helping me be a better person and put my focus more on serving others? And staring at my body in, in the mirror and flexing my muscles and kissing them and all that stuff, that's focusing on me. That's a selfish endeavor. I used to think if I stopped looking that somehow my body would uh, get fat and flabby and, and I'd get out of shape because I wouldn't care anymore. I can say exactly the opposite has happened. But for me now, it's just, I just want to feel good, you know? 
I just want to feel good physically. I want to have good energy. And so I'm not worried about the aesthetic part of it. One day that's going to disappear. One day I'm going to get old. I'm going to get saggy and it's going to go away. Or one day I'm going to have five kids and I'm not going to have time to work out. So I just won't have that anymore. That could happen. And at that point, you know, I'll have to assess what I'm going to do in order to stay fit and healthy. The other thing is I'm in a 12-step group. Okay, it took me a long time to get there. I had to have a lot of humbling experiences. I had to be beaten down to the dust mentally and emotionally. I had to hit rock bottom, which happened almost a year ago now. I didn't realize that I hadn't hit rock bottom. Even though I had been sober for over seven years, there was a deeper rock bottom I had to hit. And I hope I don't have to hit another one. But it showed me a lot of flawed ways I thought. A lot of bad habits I had. And it humbled me to the point where I finally said, okay, I need other people's help. I need other people's insight because my way is not working. And so I started going to 12-step. And I started being with a group. It's, it's, it can't be replaced. Getting a group... Other people to spend time with, it keeps you connected. It keeps you humble, keeps me humble. You know, when I go to those groups and I and I'm spend time in those rooms, it changes my life, man. It changes my life every single week when I hear these people that are right now caught up in addiction, these people that have 20 years of sobriety. I hear their perspectives. I hear their struggles. I hear their victories. And helps me think about my life and be aware of the, the, the insecurities and the flaws I still have and to assess them and be honest about them. And I share those things in those groups without judgment, people supporting you and making changes and being honest about your stuff. I love it. I love it. If you don't have a 12-step group or a group that's a support that you go to, I highly encourage that. Highly encourage that. So for me, after spending, you know, time in 12-step and obviously my experiences over the last 10 years and, you know, doing some work with others and now having clients of my own, I have a, I have a coaching program. It's based on a lot of concepts from 12-step and it expands upon those. It um, has a lot of teachings of its own. Um, it's rooted in a lot of the same core teachings, right, of acceptance, surrender, um, closeness to God. But I talk about and teach people how to stop resisting the challenges and the difficulties in their lives and stop resisting the help of God and the help of other people. I teach them how to be aware of their thoughts and how to make lifestyle changes and recognize the true roots of their issues underneath the surface, their insecurities, their feelings of inadequacy, and to look at them and make peace with them and to be able to live in a new way and feel more ease in their lives so that they can begin to lose their, addiction, their desire for addiction. I do that through weekly one-on-one -on -one sessions, through daily check-ins that my clients do. 
personalized plans and goals that I work on with them specifically, and a structured recovery program with eight milestones. It's about 250 pages of content with written exercises, things that get you to reflect and look deep. And that's all there for whoever wants to sign up for the program. Again, I'm working with people right now and helping them. I would love to have you in that program. If it's something you're interested in, there is a link in the description below this podcast episode, or you can go to nomoredesire.com slash coaching. And if that's not something you're ready for, an excellent preview into what I teach and my recovery philosophy is in my free ebook. You can go to nomoredesire.com, scroll a little bit down the page and click get my free copy. Or simply go into the description below this episode and click free ebook. So this has been a long episode today. I hope that it's helped you. Um, I hope that you found these things insightful. I apologize if at any point I, I, you know, sound prideful or judgmental or those things. That is either your perspective or my issues, right? Things I still deal with, ways I'm still imperfect in the way I see the world. I see myself. I see other people. I'm working on that. But I hope that it has been insightful for you and helped you in your recovery, helped give you some hope, helped give you some concepts and ideas for how you can change or how a loved one can change and overcome what they're going through. Much love to you guys. God bless. Everything expressed on the No More Desire podcast are the opinions of the host and participants and is for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast should not be considered mental health therapy or as a substitute thereof. It is strongly recommended that you seek out the clinical guidance of a qualified mental health professional. If you're experiencing thoughts of suicide, self-harm, or a desire to harm others, please dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency room.